determined to uh, leave the profession his father had set up for him to be um, a, a doctor, actually a lawyer, and decided to be a priest instead after what he saw as a supernatural salvation from a lightning storm that he was walking through and began to be a priest and eventually a, a theological teacher in the university in Wittenberg. And while he was there, he, he was very convicted of the understanding of his own sin and the holiness of God. And as he struggled to determine how uh, he was supposed to teach the Bible from a Roman Catholic perspective, he began to study scripture and he started comparing what the Bible taught to certain things that were taught in the church at that time. Uh, and as he did, he found that there was a number of things that seemed to be conflicting with each other. And in his view, he actually saw about 95 of these things. So what he did was he wrote a document of these 95 issues that he thought the church and the Bible were uh, fighting against each other, conflicting on. And that was now to us known as the 95 Theses. And he nailed it to the church, to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, that wasn't actually a very rebellious thing to do back then. Uh, the church door in Wittenberg was a kind of bulletin board, and so he put it there so that the church people would see it the next morning. But instead, what happened is it ended up being taken and copied and spread very, very far throughout Europe. And as many people began to also see how scripture was disagreeing with the church, that particular moment historically erupted into many, many, many years of a historical revival of Christianity, which is now called the Reformation. And in that period, uh, one of the things, one of the very important things that happened is there was a condensing of very important Christian truth into these five statements called the solas. And sola is really just a Latin word that means alone. And the idea of these alones, these five alones, these five solas, was that it was determined by these people who loved the Bible and loved studying scripture that there was five things that specify how we are to know God alone and how we are to understand salvation alone. And those things are limited not by people, not by men, but by God. And God has um, condensed the understanding of how we should know him and know how we are to be saved by him by these five ways. And those five are this, uh, scripture alone, by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and God's glory alone. The understanding of these five alones, these five solas, was that we need to know God through scripture alone is the first. The second is that we take hold of God by grace alone. The third is that we learn to trust God through faith alone. The fourth is that we are made right with God by Christ alone. And the final one is that all of these things are understood and done for God's glory alone. And these five ideas basically came to help understand people, even us 500 years later, um, the importance of understanding the Christian faith based on the way God always intended these things to be understood. And today, what we're going to do, we're going to go through five series, through all five of those points. But today, we're going to start with the first. And the first is that God has chosen to reveal himself to us and for us to learn a knowledge of him through scripture alone. Now, the overhanging question that will kind of hang over this particular sermon is, a very simple question, and it is, why a book? Why is Christianity based on a book? And 
in the context of scripture alone being the way we would determine what our faith is built upon, what our religion is based upon, what our understanding of God is based upon, why did God provide a book to be the final authority by how we determine God's truth? That's going to be the question overhanging, and I hope, I, I desperately hope through just preparing this material that that question can be answered, and as we go through these things, I hope it does. And so let me kind of go back and let me, let me start with a bigger and very simple question, maybe the easiest question to ever start with ever. What is life? What is life? If you created a robot, if you were a Tim and had the brains to create a robot and it came up and had consciousness and it just asked you, what is life about? What would you say to that person? Or what would you say, how do you determine what life is about? Now, all of us have experience of this because all of us have done this. All of us live and have begun living. You were once a baby and one day you were simply born and you simply started existing. And the first thing you started doing, even before you realized, even before your memories can take you back to that time, you began learning. You started learning about yourself. You started figuring out who you are and how you work through walking and talking. And as you started to develop, you started realizing how other things work. And you're not only a person, but there are other people out there and you live in what's called a society. But first you live in what's called a family. You first started learning about what's important. Those are things that you need. But then after that, you started realizing as your personality developed uh, what you not only need, but what you want. And so your idea of living changes from for surviving what you need to thriving, doing the things you want to do, doing things that make you more comfortable and more happy. But throughout that entire period of life, and even when you get to this point now, you start to learn something important that is not a very fun thing to learn. You learned it when you were a child and you keep learning it every single day now. And that idea is that you are limited. When you were a baby, you learned that it was through learning and through knowledge that you could only go so far. It took time and patience before you could learn to walk and learn to talk and learn to develop. And it took even longer for you to develop not only a way to move, but a way to gain your independence, to gain control in some way, in some small bubble over your own life. But that limitation still exceeds. You're limited in, in most things that you do. You're limited geographically. From this place on, we don't actually technically know what's happening outside of these doors. Even if you stood on top of a very tall mountain, one of the tallest mountains in Fullerton, maybe you could see about 10 miles. But past that, you have no idea what's going on out there. But even more important than just geographical limitation, you are limited in your knowledge. Learning things and learning facts and learning information and learning what life even itself is about for you and for everyone, that all takes time. And even if you spend every single waking moment of your life just learning things, you will one day reach a certain age where even your body's ability to keep working itself is limited and you still would not have learned everything that there is to know. Now that understanding of life and life's limits is a good place to start when we consider how scripture affects a Christian worldview. I think the reason it's helpful is because the Bible fundamentally is a book about life. 
For the rest of this sermon, I want to kind of expand into a paragraph about what scripture is supposed to be about to the best that I could come up with, at least in presenting it to you guys. And the best way to start with scripture is considering that scripture, the Bible is a book about life. In Genesis chapter one and two, at the very beginning, it explains how life began, how God existed before time and before our lives existed, and he created everything. He created land and oceans and water and creatures, and finally he created us in his image. But all of life goes back to God. But very, very quickly in Genesis chapter 3, like we learned in our last series, that life changed because people didn't want to live a kind of life God wanted, and instead they wanted to be their own gods. And so in that moment, life didn't only change, but God says that in that moment, life was lost. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God tells Adam and Eve, all of our forefathers and mothers, that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And once they do that, life isn't just changed in terms of a lifestyle choice that's different than God intended. Death is now introduced, and therefore the forfeiture of eternal life with God. But again, just as quick as life is lost, life and this plan for life being regained is immediately started in Genesis chapter 315, where God says he's going to crush through his offspring the head of the snake, which is Satan, which is the representation of death. And so this plan from that point on all the way to the end of the Bible is a story about how life is going to be regained. And that understanding of that story is written with us, uh, written uh, to us rather in words in scripture, and they are written for the purpose of life. Listen to Isaiah 55, three, which says, listen that you may live. And Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, 25, that those who hear will live. So through the Bible, throughout the Bible in the Old and New Testaments, this is going to be a story about life. Now, of course, as we are living, we are trying to constantly learn about our lives, but the meaning of life eludes us because, as we said, we are limited. Now, again, the Bible comes in and makes this huge, grandiose, massive statement, which is this. The ultimate author of this book is not like us in that he is not limited. The Bible is telling a story about life from an unlimited perspective, from God's perspective. There are no mountains or trees in the way of his vision. There's no four walls that hold him in to not see everything. He has no geographical limitation. First, John says that God is spirit, which means he exists everywhere. He does not have a boundary by which he doesn't know things. And just like Genesis 1-1 starts in the beginning, God, God doesn't have a beginning of his existence. He always existed. And therefore, as time progresses, God is not only not held by time, but God is not limited by time. He doesn't need to learn anything. He never needed to go through experiences or go through trauma or anything by which he could learn more about things. He's always known everything. And this is why the Bible makes these amazing statements, these written and recorded words of God for us, that the word of God will stand forever. Because no matter the time or context, God always knows everything and everyone. And so none of his words needs to ever be subject to change. That's why Isaiah 48, chapter 40, verse 8, rather, says 
that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God is not limited by his existence or his knowledge, and therefore his word to us is not either. And therefore, because God is that big and God knows that much, his word is not only true in and of itself, but it actually proves to be true when we read it. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says that every word of God proves true. And Psalm 18 verse 20 expands that even further with this statement, that this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. And therefore, when we, having the Bible, have these eternal perfect words of God, it is the right and only and perfect standard for how we understand everything that exists, how everything began, and ultimately, like we're saying, how life is supposed to be lived and understood. And because of that, because God cares about our lives and actually communicated a message to us, that word is not only always true, it's not only always perfect, it doesn't only prove true to us when we read it, but it's also profitable. When we learn it and it affects our lives and changes us, it actually proves useful. An amazing passage that talks about that is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, which says this. All scripture, and let me read that again, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Notice all of the words that he says there, these words like, it is profitable for us, it teaches us, it trains us, it equips us. The word of God does something in which knowing it and absorbing it and doing it is useful in life. And notice what scriptures he's talking about. Second Timothy is one of the last books written in the New Testament. And so when he means all scripture, he means all scripture. He means from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, every single verse and every single word that is written in that book proves to be profitable and useful. And it equips us to do what God says is good. So now we can expand that statement even further. The Bible is the message through God's unlimited perspective. The Bible explains the perfectly true story about life. Now, how can we expand that even further? Well, let's think this way. From the last series, one of the points that we learned is that we need to know the Christ of Christianity. If you guys remember that, that we are to sanctify Christ as holy in our hearts. So one of the things that proves the validity and the perfection of the Bible is that all of this New Testament is not a separate book from the Old Testament. It's actually a story about life that is bringing up this very important point about how life is supposed to be regained, like God says in the garden in Genesis 3.15. And all of that is moving towards Christ. And Christ's importance is obviously seen in the fact that we are called Christians, Christ followers. And Christ himself explains that to us. An amazing book to read in the New Testament that's fundamentally about life and what life is about is the Gospel of John. At the beginning of the Gospel of John and at the end of the Gospel of John, the writer, John himself, the Apostle John, explains the importance of Christ by saying this. By believing in Christ... You might have life 
in his name. So this regaining of life is centrally found in all of this story, concluding and making this exciting climactic turn in Christ. And that message leading to Christ doesn't eradicate everything that came before it. It's a new in terms that it's adding something to the message of the Old Testament, but it's not ignoring it, and it's certainly not destroying it. Christ himself says that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Christ says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says two things there about two things that won't leave. He says the law and the prophets won't be abolished. And he says neither a iota nor a dot will be, in, will be abolished. When he says the law and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament. The law was what is known by the Jewish people as the Torah. That's Genesis to Deuteronomy. And the prophets contains almost everything else of the Old Testament. So when he says that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he's saying, I didn't come to ignore or get rid of the Old Testament. I'm fulfilling the Old Testament. And then he further says that by saying an iota and a dot will not pass away. When he says iota, he's referring to the largest Hebrew character, like an A or a B or a C, the largest Hebrew letter of the Old Testament. And a dot is the smallest character in the Old Testament Hebrew language. It's basically a period. So he says from the largest scribal marking to the smallest scribal marking, none of it I came to get rid of or ignore. He's basically saying in the most dramatic terms, I am coming to, as he says here, accomplish everything. He says that was a perfect message and I'm here to reveal its perfection and I'm here to explain how I'm going to fulfill it. Well, how is he going to fulfill it? He explains that in John chapter 5, verse 29, where Christ says this. He tells the Hebrew people, you search the scriptures, referring to the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The Old Testament was always a story about life, and it was always a story about how life was going to be regained in the Messiah, in this Savior. And that perfect message came together in a way that when Christ came, he wasn't saying, you have to believe me. He was saying, the scriptures are proving that I'm exactly who I say I am. Not a single part of them is talking about some other guy who's going to come and save you. It's so clear that I'm the person who God sent to come and save you. And notice how he makes that argument in that passage in John 5, verse 29. He says, not only all the Old Testament is true, but all the Old Testament is saying the exact same message culminating in me. So why don't we take that and let's add that to our paragraph. Now we have this statement. Through God's unlimited perspective, the Bible explains the perfectly true story about how Jesus is going to bring life. So now we've clarified what scripture is going to be about getting life from a God who we can trust and we can trust his word. And that life is going to be found in Jesus. Before we go further, let me take a step back and just refer to something obvious. You might tell me, okay, Clifton, if all of that is true, if all of that is relevant, if it's really that obvious that the Bible is true, why do so many people reject the Bible? 
Why do so many people say that the Bible doesn't make sense? Why do so many people say that the Bible is boring? Why do so many people say that the Old Testament and the New Testament are totally different books with totally different gods? There's way too many problems I can think of right now that seem to ignore what you're talking about. I think that's a legitimate question. I think that's a question when I was your guys' age, I had that question all the time and I had it for years when I grew up in the church. So why don't we step back and as we continue expanding this paragraph, let's go to a particular text of scripture to start unpacking that question. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. If you don't turn there now, that's okay, I'll read it. But this is a, one of the most famous passages in scripture talking about what the Bible does. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The first thing that the author of Hebrews says there is that the word of God is living. He doesn't say that the words give life only. He's saying that the words themselves are life because they are living. The Bible is a book about how words have power and specifically how God's words have power. Consider the way that creation itself began. Eight times in Genesis chapter one, God says, let there be inaudible words. And guess what happened? Things happened. Has anyone ever here said banana? And there's just a banana just exists. None of us can even consider that kind of power. And that is specifically how everything came to be through words. The Bible begins by explaining that the words of God are powerful. And as they've been recorded for us, that power moved not only through God, but it was given to people. It was given to men as they wrote the Bible. The Bible is not a random assortment of human beings who got together and made up a religion. It was one in which God himself gave them power to write exactly what God wanted them to write. And that power was so supernatural and so amazing that the Bible proves that it all fits together, proving that even though men wrote the Bible, God is the ultimate author of the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 obviously a New Testament book that's looking at all of scripture that we have, says this, that we know, first of all, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men determined to honor God by writing down words, and as time progressed, there was a recognition that they had spoken exactly what God wanted them to. Now, we don't know all of the details about how that came to be, but it is very clear that Christians in general knew the perfection of that because God himself allowed it to be that all of those things could be put together and powerfully revealed that it was not only maybe true or mostly true, but it was obviously true that God was the author of the words that were written. One of my favorite examples of this in all of scripture, something that absolutely blew me away when I grew up for your context in churches and in places in which I was told that if I prayed hard enough, God himself would come and give me experiences. 
And so for so much of my Christian life, I trusted in these kinds of experiences that God needed to do something for me. And his word was just one other way I could understand God. And so I never really trusted in the kind of power that the Bible had and how the Bible was, the word we're looking for is sufficient, that it is not only a helpful thing that we need, but everything that we need. I didn't understand that until I heard this part of the Bible. Second Peter chapter one, verse 16. Second Peter chapter one, verse 16 says this. Peter, the apostle who we just went through, is explaining his ministry and the ministry of the other apostles who were literally with the living, breathing Jesus. And he says this about their ministry. He says that we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of our coming Lord Jesus. He makes it very clear. We didn't lie to you. We didn't come and invent this random religion. We spoke to you the truth. And so he goes to explain an example of why they can trust him. This is the example he gives. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. What he's referring to is a moment recorded for us in what I believe is Matthew chapter 16 called the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, two other brothers who were also apostles, went on a mountain with Jesus and they saw him not only revealed just as a man, but as God himself. And in that moment when they were overwhelmed with the fact that their friend who spoke the words of life was actually God, the father spoke from heaven and made it clear again, you are definitely seeing exactly what you think you're seeing. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. If you ever needed a guy to give you evidence of the existence of God, it would be someone who saw God twice. That is probably the best evidence anyone could ever have to know the power and legitimacy of what they're talking about. But then he goes a step further. He doesn't say, I saw Jesus, believe me. He says this, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He says, I saw God and I saw God the Father affirm the Son. I saw it. And you know what's a better understanding of the Christian faith? You know what's something that proves more the power of God? It's not seeing God, it's reading his word. That's more powerful. Just process that for a second. That's more powerful. I think you'd agree with me that there are moments in your life where you just wish, you know what, I got doubts about the Christian faith. Why doesn't God just show up in front of me and just show me that he's real? Why can't I have an Apostle Thomas moment where Jesus can show up in front of me and show me the scars on his hand? And so I can know that this is real. God says you don't need that. Even Jesus, when he so showed his hands to Thomas and Thomas said, you are surely the Christ. He says, blessed are those who do not see me and yet believe. Because he was talking about the sufficient power of the Bible. It is enough. And so that kind of power is something important to reveal 
in our paragraph, which is this. Through God's unlimited nature, the Bible explains the perfectly true and powerfully revealed story about how Jesus is going to bring life. And that power the Bible explains is not just a power that God has. It's not just a power that he gives to the authors who wrote scripture to make sure that it was 100% from God and what God intended. That power wasn't just for those two. That power was also extended to everyone who would read the Bible and believe the words of the Bible. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 412 and look at the next part that he explains. He says, the word of God is living and active. The word of God is living and active. It's up to something. It's doing an activity. It's not just doing something in the hearts of people who wrote it. It's doing something in your heart when you read it. That power is happening to you. And he explains the power in his own words. He says that that power is active and sharper than any two-edged sword. A sword was the best weapon in this period of time when the author of Hebrews was writing that a single person could have. And not just any sword, but a two-edged sword, a sword that one pastor I listened to said is sharp no matter which way you swing it. It cuts no matter which way you swing it. It doesn't have a blunt point. One well-placed well, uh, swing could do some serious damage to a person's life. And that word could be used to hack us to death. It could be used to powerfully destroy us, but that's actually not what the author of Hebrews says that the word of God does. He says that it doesn't hack us. It pierces us. It pierces us. What's the difference? Why does he use that verb? Well, let me explain. Mr. Lincoln Mack, you and Levi, yeah, I was surprised I named you, huh? You and Le Levi are doing fencing right now. Am I correct? Now, let me ask you a question. If I am fencing with you, and I come and I'm trying to fence you and beat you. If I do this with my sword, am I fencing correctly? No. How am I fencing correctly? What action am I supposed to do? You correct me if I'm wrong. Is it one of these? You kind of do one of these. So you don't hack, right? You are adding to a particular point on the body. You're trying to hit a particular part on the body that you're looking at. Am I correct in saying that? Perfect then this illustration, I hope, makes sense. The Bible is piercing because it's trying to get at a specific part of you. The Bible knows exactly where it's aiming. And because the Bible is living with the living power of God, many people have said this statement. They're saying that men are not critical of the Bible. The Bible is critical of them. When the Bible pierces, it's aiming at your heart. It's aiming at your soul. It's actively doing something to you, and it's making you question life and how you've determined life up until this point. And when it prods you, it's winning. And it's trying to point something out to you. It's trying to point out to you that you need this power in your life, and you need to accept this message, and you need the spirit of God and his power to be able to even understand the words. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says this, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Guys, anyone can go into a bookstore and for like a dollar, buy a Bible. 
Anyone can read the Bible. It's free online. You can find one on the street. We can give you a free Bible tonight. Anyone can read the Bible. But not everyone can understand the Bible. Yet the Bible was written in language by which we can read it and we can understand the words, but it doesn't pierce us in the heart, or at least not in the way that we think. Now we can add to that paragraph, but then we need to deal with something. The thing that we can add is this. Through God's unlimited perspective, the Bible explains the perfectly true, powerfully and personally revealed story about how Jesus is going to bring life. What's the personal nature of it? What is the Bible piercing? What is the Bible getting at and actively going at when it pierces us? And it's telling you this. It's telling us that we are sinners. The Bible is piercing our hearts to remind us that we have something in the way of understanding this Bible clearly, and it's our sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, and it asks this question, who can understand it? We are emotional. We are complicated. We are ever-changing, ever-learning. And the question that Jeremiah asks is, how can you understand all of life and how everything works together? And if there's a meaning to life at all, if we can't even understand our own hearts. And the reason we don't understand our own hearts is because we are sinners. Think back to the example that Peter gave. He said that the more sure prophetic word shines like a lamp in a dark place. That's what he said. Do you know where that dark place is? It's our hearts. And the living active word of God is piercing those hearts to ask you the question, do you believe this message? Because if you don't, it's not because you're stupid. It's not because you're intellectually stunted. It's not because you're unintelligent. It's because we are sinners. It's not that we can't understand the Bible. It's that we don't want to understand the Bible. Because the Bible tells us we're sinners. And who would ever want to believe a message that we are sinners? What human being would write that message? Yet the Bible reveals that to us, though it's dramatically terrifying and even tragic. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And they are folly, which means they are foolish to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Let's add the last thing, the essential thing to that paragraph, which is this. Through God's unlimited perspective, the Bible explains the perfectly revealed, powerful, and personally revealed story about how Jesus is going to bring life to spiritually dead people. Sin does not make us only sinners. It doesn't make us only sick. Sin makes us dead. Think back to the story in the New Testament in which Jesus calls out to a tomb of his friend Lazarus, who is dead, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus wakes up from the dead and he comes out of the cave. Imagine if Jesus called out. What kind of response did Lazarus give? The answer is none, because he's dead. 
Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And by the power of God, he was raised from the dead. And then he came forth. He was a dead person who needed life given to him by God before he could obey God. And this is what the Bible teaches us. By the living power of God, we who are spiritually dead people might be raised again from the power behind these words and the knowledge that brings to our lives about what life is about, that we would walk out of the dead tombs that we are living in and we would walk to God and we would accept the message of Christ giving us freely eternal life. Words by themselves cannot raise anybody to life. But the words of God can raise people to life. And they do raise people to life. Because the power of God demands it. The power of God behind the words of God in the Bible, perfectly given to us and proven true, can only come alive in our hearts if God pierces us with his living, active word. And through reading the word of God, we become clarified and through reading the word of God become purified and through reading the word of God we actually understand this is definitely from God and I definitely need it because there's consequences to not believing it John three nineteen says this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil we are accountable. That means we are responsible for rejecting the Bible. For any one of you saying that God could never, ever judge me, God could never give me eternal life because you just said yourself, I can't raise myself to life. Guess what? The Bible still says that it's not just that you can't understand the Bible. It's you don't want to understand the Bible. And so you are accountable for your sin. We love evil. And even now, as we begin to recognize, I pray, that we desperately need the words of life, it is already evidence that the Spirit of God is working in our hearts to bring us to life and do some things for us. Maybe now might be a time as we wrap up to go back to the initial question that I wanted to bring up at this message, which is, why a book? Why did God choose a book to reveal this? As I was thinking about this, honestly, the the technical answer is that why not? God is God and he can do what he wants and God can reveal himself in whatever form he wants. So maybe he didn't want to do it through television. Maybe he didn't want to do it through a documentary or a movie. Maybe he didn't want to just be in heaven and just always yell at us and explain his word. He chose a book. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But I think there's another reason. I can give you at least one other reason and I hope it's helpful. It's that the collected record of all of God's words through history that the Bible is, the fact that they've been kept together and they've been preserved through different centuries and different contexts proves that the word of God is always capable and always sufficient to bring this message of life. No other book perfectly recounts the beginning of all of history all the way to the end and it certainly couldn't be written by a bunch of random dudes who just started to write down random words and it all just made sense together. And it certainly wouldn't share the kind of message that it shares about how we might be damned to eternal judgment if we don't accept it. This is a radically different message from any other message, but it has been preserved perfectly through all of human history. 
And no matter what context you go to, the words of God proved effective to do what God said they would do, which is to bring eternal life. Why a book? Because the book explains and gives us priorities in our life. It's a kind of format that you would understand, you know what, I'm not a book reader. Well, then you tell me why if you read this book and you start to be moved and you want to read that book, how on earth did God make book readers who people who don't like books, rather, non-book readers, into book readers, into people obsessed with a book. It's because the book is powerful. It's because in these words written down and in the way we can go between massive periods of history, and we can go past the normal limitations we have because of God's unlimited perspective, we can see the way that God has brought together a perfect message in the way no other form could possibly do. That's the best way that I can help you understand why a book. So let me close with these two things as quickly as I can. What do we do with that? What do we do with that kind of information? How can I change? How can I try and apply it in my life? Let me give you two very quick things. Number one is that scripture is enough for your personal assurance. Scripture is enough for your personal assurance. You might be talking to people who doubt God. You might be talking to people and thinking to yourself, I'm starting to have doubts myself. Is the Bible really enough? And the Bible tells you, and God's power and his Holy Spirit to your heart tells you, yes, it is enough. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Guys, the scriptures are enough. If there's two things you need to walk away with enough of the understanding of scripture alone, it is this. The Bible is perfect. It is inerrant. It means it never has errors. It never has problems because God's power wrote it. The Bible is inerrant. And the second thing is the Bible is sufficient. It is everything you need. Like 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, it is everything you need. I hope that the Bible is enough for you because it is enough for you. It is from God and it was written not so you would be freaked out in this life, not so you wouldn't know what to do, but that you would be personally assured that God has a plan revealed in Jesus Christ to bring you freely eternal life. And God wanted to give you the scriptures to give you assurance of that. That's the first one. Scripture is enough for your personal assurance. Here's the second one. Scripture is enough for your personal evangelism. Scripture is enough to evangelize with. If you're like me, when I was in college, I was terrified to talk to anybody about Christianity because I didn't have graphs and I didn't have scientific facts and I didn't have sweet language like other people had. And I didn't have a doctorate degree. I didn't even have a master's degree. And at that time, I was only working on an undergraduate degree. And what if I didn't even get that? What do I have to prove to people that the Bible is true? And the Bible tells you, you don't need anything else to prove that the Bible is true because the Bible is going to prove that it's true to your heart. And as you use just the Bible to explain it to other people, they are going to be moved by the same power that moved you. The Bible is enough. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, that when he came to preach the gospel, he sucked at talking. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I suck at talking. I'm a bad monologuer. I'm not really a preacher. I'm not designed for this. But he said that God demonstrated his power through what? The Spirit. And why did he do that? 
so that your faith wouldn't rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Guys, don't feel the pressure to learn all these massively amazing arguments to prove that the Bible is true. Just use the Bible. It'll do everything it needs to do. The Bible even has a record of the proof of that. It's called the book of Acts. The book of Acts is literally just a word about how people explained the message of Jesus Christ fulfilling the Old Testament and people got saved. One example in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they, that is Christians, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. That's all they did. All they had was the gospel. They said, you are a sinner, you need Christ, and he will give you eternal life. And they used more Old Testament as they learned and grew in the scriptures, and they just said that. And you know what happened? Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And that same chapter says that it moved them so greatly, they gave up everything they had. Not under compulsion, not under demand. People individually and privately in their own home said, take everything I have and use it to send other people to propagate and share the gospel. That's the whole book of Acts. Explain the gospel. Thousands and thousands of people around the world get saved. I hope that you can understand that. And the point is not to convict you. It's not to make you feel bad. It's just to explain to you that scripture is enough. I know sometimes the Bible is confusing. Peter actually says himself that when he reads Paul and the things that Paul knew were going to be scripture, he says, I know some of it's confusing. But the Holy Spirit's power will slowly, as you grow and learn, reveal to you more and more, which will make you even more and more assured of God. And I know that there's pressure in every single one of you going through transitions and changes in your life. And all I want to tell you is that even if you have to make brand new friends, even if you feel totally alone, even if you're removed from your families, scripture is enough. No matter how many people who say they're Christians come into your life and they do something so unbelievably unchristian, no matter how many people share the good news of Christ or say they love the good news of Christ, but they hurt you, no matter who does that, they are not an accurate representation of this book. God himself reveals himself in the reading of this book. And if none of that makes sense to you, then I have one suggestion from the bottom of my heart, which is just read it. Read it. Ask God's power to move in your heart and see what happens. Scripture is all you need. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you do good. Even as we come to this place and we know that scripture is important, we want to know what scripture is all about. We want to know why we have a book. And Lord, you've done so much for us to reveal things in this book. Even as we learn about you and your importance, there's so many questions we have, so many gaps, so many problems that we can't solve. There's just so much we don't know. So Lord, please move through your word, move through the preaching of your word as we hear from Friday nights and we hear from Sunday mornings from Pastor Josh. Let the Bible move in our hearts in such a way that we would trust you more, that we would, if we have not accepted you, that we would turn away from our sin by your power and we would turn to you and we would receive this message of eternal life. 
us faith and give us hope to understand that you are for us. And as we will learn in coming weeks, we know you shouldn't be for us. We know that in our sin, we should be damned, but because you are a gracious God, you've saved us. You've offered the message of salvation. Give us power to take hold of it and continue to grow in you. And we ask for all of this by your gracious power and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, by which we say, amen.